Amen. Thank you, Bonnie, Linda, and Harriet. Wonderful as always. Alrighty, if you have your Bibles, please open them up to Genesis chapter 44. In your bulletins, if you noticed, I have been negligent and I keep on putting the wrong one on. <laughs> I, think la- I think last week I messed up and I kept it. And then this past week I made it 43, but we did 43 last week. So, oh man, shameful, shameful. Two typos in one bulletin. That's not, that's not sufficient. Ellen, it's not right. Anyway. All right, so last week what we went over was how Joseph's brothers returned to Egypt after um, having a little bit of a confrontation with Jacob. Jacob was very hesitant to allow Benjamin to return with them, but in the end, Judah stepped forward and said, Listen, Father, we need to go back, but we need to take Benjamin, otherwise we can't. Otherwise, the man of the land is going to say no to us, so we have to take him. In the end, Jacob relented, they went back, um, and... In the end, everything went really well. Um, They've eaten together in a way. They were in different tables, but in the end, in the same room. Um, And Joseph, he welcomed them pretty gladly. And so now it's going to see, okay, what happens next? What is Joseph going to do now? Um, And that's where we're at. So we're going to go through the whole chapter just like we did last week because it just fits better together. So starting with verse 1 and going through verse 5. Then he commanded the steward of this house, fill the men's sacks with food as much as they can carry and put each man's money in the mouth of his sack and put my cup, the silver cup, in the mouth of the sack of the youngest with his money for the grain. And he did as Joseph told him. As soon as the morning was light, the men were sent away with their donkeys. They had gone only a short distance from the city. Now Joseph said to his steward, follow up. Follow after the men, and when you overtake them, say to them, Why have you repaid evil for good? Is it not from this that my Lord drinks, and by this he practices divination? You have done evil in doing this. All right, so the story continues with Joseph commanding his steward to fill the brothers' bags with food. They had originally come with a designated amount in mind, and yet here we find him wanting them to be filled to the brim, so to speak. Not only this, but Joseph commands his steward to return the money as well that they were going to use to pay for the food. At first, we find Joseph appearing quite generous in light of everything that has happened. But then we learn that he tells his steward to put his silver cup and Benjamin's bag. And we notice it's a very particular cup. It's not just any cup. It's the silver cup. Um, So this is to be included with the money for the grain. As such, the steward is ever faithful and does his duty. We are left to wonder, though, why Joseph is commanding this to happen. The next morning, the brothers simply begin their journey. It did not take long for Joseph to tell his steward, though, to go and overtake them. Indeed, they were not very far from the city itself, as the text tells us. Once the steward was to overtake them, he was to say to them, Why have you repaid evil for good? They had received numerous blessings since arriving in Egypt. They received their brother back. And so it is that they seem to be repaying this good with theft. Likewise, the way that Joseph tells the steward to phrase it further emphasizes the point. Is it not from this that my Lord drinks? Um, The question implies that the brothers would already understand what has taken place? It doesn't say the cup. He just says, isn't this what my Lord drinks from? Um, so in the meantime, they still have no idea, since it was not Benjamin, but Joseph, who had the cup placed in this act in the first place. So it's a very, very way, tricky way to go about doing this, to make it appear like they would definitely know when they have no idea. So then we come to what happens next, starting with verse 6. 
When he overtook them, he spoke to them these words. They said to him, Why does my Lord speak such words as these? Far be it from your servants to do such a thing. Behold, the money that we found in the mouths of our sacks we brought back to you from the land of Canaan. How then could we steal silver or gold from your Lord's house? Whichever of your servants is found with it shall die, and we also will be my Lord's servants. He said, Let it be as you say, he who is found with it shall be my servant, and the rest of you shall be innocent. Then each man quickly lowered his sacks to the ground, and each man opened his sack. And he searched, beginning with the eldest and ending with the youngest. And the cup was found in Benjamin's sack. Then they tore their clothes, and every man loaded his donkey, and they returned to the city. So naturally, the steward complies and says as Joseph commanded him to say, Now, clearly, again, the brothers have just no idea what's happening. They immediately declare that they're innocents, and they wonder how they could be accused of such a disdainful act. They then make the obvious argument that they had even brought extra money with them back um, when they returned. Why would they bring a bunch of money just to steal something of worth? It doesn't make any sense to them. As such, so sure of their innocence, they declare that whoever has the cup will die, and all of them will become slaves if they do, in fact, have the cup. Now, this scene is reminiscent of a scene in Jacob's life with Laban. On his escape, Laban caught up to him and demanded the terror from him, if you remember, and Jacob replied that whoever had stolen them from him would die, not knowing that it was his beloved wife who had taken it from them. The same thing is happening now. A somewhat quick pledge leads to potential disaster. The steward denies their offer, but instead says that whoever does have the cup would become his servant and the rest can go free. Um, In other words, instead of that servant being killed there in a spot or anything like that, they would just be taken as his slave. This is technically a more reasonable response under such a situation. Ultimately, it would mean that only the one guilty of the crime would pay rather than everyone else. We then have this classic dramatic scene as each of the brothers puts their sack down and opens them. Um, The steward, he carefully goes over each man's stack, starting with the oldest to the youngest. You can kind of imagine this in a movie. We, We who know which one holds the cup and the brothers do not. The tension is purposefully being built up as the cup is found in Benjamin Sachs. As it says, oldest to youngest, he slowly goes down the line. The response from the brothers is fascinating. Previously, it was only Jacob who had torn his clothes over the loss of Joseph. The response of the brothers now, however, is complete anguish. They all know what this means and immediately show their remorse over what has happened. They could get on their donkeys at this point and simply return home. But instead, we find them going back to Egypt, to the city. So now we come to verses 14 through 17. When Judah and his brothers came to Joseph's house, he was still there. They fell before him to the ground. Joseph said to them, What deed is this that you have done? Do you not know that a man like me can indeed practice divination? And Judah said, What shall we say to my Lord? What shall we speak? Or how can we clear ourselves? God has found the guilt of your servants. Behold, we are my Lord's servants, both we and he also in whose hands the cup has been found. But he said, Far be it from me that I should do so. Only the man in whose hand the cup has been found shall be my servant. But as for you, go up in peace to your father. I know, it's exciting. So at this point, we notice something interesting. Instead of simply saying the brothers, we learn it is Judah, and his brothers. 
At this point, we understand Judah will purposefully take the lead. As such, they go to Joseph's house, and immediately they fall down before him in um, repose. His response is simple. What have you done? He is someone who is known to interpret dreams. Whether or not he used the cup to do this is doubtful. Instead, it seems as a way to emphasize the seriousness of the crime at hand. Not only was it a treasured cup, but it also was used for religious significance. Um, At least that's the way they're being portrayed. Also, um, when you consider the fact that Joseph asks, what have you done? It's reminiscent of something else that happens in scriptures. For example, Adam and Eve, um, when it comes to Cain and Esau, or Cain and Abel. Um, All these times, God is asking, what have you done? What have you done? They know what has happened already. So again, we see that it is Judah who speaks. He asks plainly how they can alleviate their guilt before Joseph. Now, this is significant as it is doubtful that Judah would be lying in this situation. The truth is they have no guilt when it comes to the cup. None at all. But thus far, whenever God has been mentioned along with their guilt in the previous chapters, we find it mean in regards to Joseph. Indeed, they even previously recognized that God was bringing their problems on their heads because of what they had done to Joseph. Thus, the true guilt that they are paying for is not the cup, but what they had done previously to their brother. And they know it. As such, Judah offers all of them as his servants. Joseph, however, focuses on the here and now rather than on the past. Only the cupbearer would pay the penalty, not the rest. The rest of them can go home, but Benjamin will stay. Now the next few verses. Then Judah went up to him and said, O my Lord, please let your servant speak a word in my Lord's ear. And let not your anger burn against your servant, for you are like Pharaoh himself. My Lord asked his servant, saying, Have you a father or a brother? And we said to my Lord, We have a father, an old man, and a young brother, the child of his old age. His brother is dead, and he alone is left of his mother's children, and his father loves him. Then you said to your servants, Bring him down to me, that I may set my eyes on him. We said to my Lord, The boy cannot leave his father, for if he should leave his father, his father would die. Then you said to your servants, Unless your youngest brother comes down with you, you shall not see my face again. All right. So at this point, Judah begins one of the most significant, if not the most significant, speeches in Genesis. Scholars even know its formality and its brilliance as truly emotional, yet a reasonable plea by Judah. He begins with a recognition of authority. As it is, he is the servant in the scenario, and Joseph is like Pharaoh himself. He is cautious not to make Joseph any angrier, but instead focuses on the reality of the situation. As such, he reminds Joseph of much of what has happened in the previous chapters. The only difference is that he leaves out all the talk of being spies, their imprisonment, or Simeon's imprisonment. Instead, he focuses on the questions asked. Have you a father or a brother? Judah then describes Jacob as an old man and Benjamin as the child of his old age. Um, We see the contrast between the two, the oldest and the youngest of the family. Judah then describes the death of Joseph and how because of this, Benjamin is the only one of Rachel's children who remains. He then makes the painful yet necessary observation that Benjamin is loved by Jacob. Whereas the rest of them might not receive this, they have become accepting of Jacob's favoritism. 
He then slightly alters the way in which Joseph wanted Benjamin to come. Previously, we had known that they were not allowed to enter into Egypt apart from Benjamin. Now Judah softens it by saying that Joseph simply wanted to set his eyes on him. Despite the protestations that Benjamin was so greatly loved by Jacob that the separation would kill him, in the end, they still end up doing it. So now we come to verses 24 through 29. When he went back to your servant, when we went back to to your servant, my father, we told him the words of my Lord. And when our father said, go again, buy us a little food, we said, we cannot go down. If our youngest brother goes with us, then we will go down. For we cannot see the man's face unless our youngest brother is with us. Then your servant, my father, said to us, You know that my wife bore me two sons. One left me, and I said, Surely he has been torn to pieces, and I have never seen him since. If you take this one also from me, and harm happens to him, you will bring down my gray hairs in evil to Sheol. So then he continues to describe Jacob in his speech. Jacob had wanted them to go get more food. But there was this protestation from the brothers. They told Jacob that unless Benjamin should go down too, that they would not be able to even see the man's face, let alone get any food. Benjamin must go, otherwise they cannot go to Egypt. Judah then gives further statements to Jacob's own protestations. Again, showing the favoritism of his father, he reflects that Jacob argued that Benjamin is the only son left of Rachel's. The other, Joseph, had passed away. At least the description of being torn to pieces was stated previously by Jacob 20 years ago as an anguished cry. It is likely that Jacob or Judah accurately conveyed his sorrow and grief when he restated that statement as well. As such, Jacob has not seen his beloved son since, and presumably because of his death. As such, if Benjamin were to go and harm does happen as it did with Joseph, then not only would he be brought in low in grief as he was with Joseph, but in the end, Jacob would die in his grief. And now we come to the final few verses of Judah's speech. Now, therefore, as soon as I come to your servant, my father, and the boy is not with us, then as his life is bound up in the boy's life, as soon as he sees that the boy is not with us, he will die, and your servants will bring down the gray hairs of your servant, our father, with sorrow to Sheol. For your servant became a pledge of safety for the boy to my father, saying, If I do not bring him back to you, then I shall bear the blame before my father all my life. Now, therefore, please let your servant remain instead of the boy as a servant to my Lord, and let the boy go back with his brothers. For how can I go back to my father if the boy is not with me? I fear to see the evil that would find my father. So Judah emphasizes that leaving Benjamin will only lead to the end of Jacob's life. They are bound together because of the great love Jacob has for Benjamin, the remaining son of his beloved wife, Rachel. As if Judah and the brothers return home without Benjamin, then Jacob will die, and it will be Judah's fault. Notice Judah does not place the blame on Joseph the man for this potential outcome, but instead he blames it on himself. He puts all of it on himself. For he recognizes that he had made the pledge. Nothing would happen to Benjamin on the way. If anything were to happen, then Judah alone would bear the responsibility. He would take the blame for himself uh, for all of his life. Judah then makes one final plea. He is willing to take Benjamin's place. He will stay behind, be the servant to Joseph, but let Benjamin return. He is willing to sacrifice his own life for the sake of his brothers. Judah, who had once been the one who recommended 
selling Joseph into slavery, the beloved son of Jacob, is now willing to offer himself as a slave for the beloved son of Jacob. Whereas previously none of the brothers cared about how their father would feel over the loss of their brother, that is not the case presently. Even if they aren't as loved as Joseph was, or Benjamin is, the truth is they still love their father. As such, Judah in particular will do whatever it takes in order to keep any more form of evil from befalling his beloved father. As such, Judah's powerful speech ends. All right. So the main point of this chapter is to describe the events that happen after Joseph meets his brothers for the second time. In this case, he tests them. He gives the brothers food and all the money, but also the cup into Benjamin's sack. He sends his steward after the brothers once they leave, who finds it in the sack. This leads them all back to Joseph, where Judah makes a powerful speech for mercy on behalf of their father Joseph, Jacob, offering himself a sacrifice so that Jacob may receive his beloved son Benjamin back. All right. So today we continue through one of the more well-known stories in the Old Testament. That is the story of Joseph and his brothers and the infamous hiding of the cup. As we've gone through Joseph's life thus far, I'm sure we are all reminiscing about what it is that we've been hearing again. Um, And I think this is a good thing worth praising God for because it means that our teachers have done a really good job telling us the stories, um, these high points. But oftentimes the high points can cause us to overlook the little pieces of information which are vital for the entire story. The two that we don't want to miss today in this story that we've just gone over um, is not so much with the cup or the possibility of servanthood. No, it's about guilt and repentance. As we mentioned already while going through the text, the brothers of Joseph are well aware of their guilt. The guilt is very significant for the entire passage because it is not only a feeling of being guilty, like a child with their hand in the cookie jar. No, it is a very real guilt before God over what they had done to their brother Joseph. In Judah's speech, we see it plain. The brothers are aware that their current circumstances and their misfortunes, it's retribution by God over their guilt. They have failed miserably in the past, and it is now God who is making their guilt evident before them. They are well aware then that their guilt is worthy of judgment. The truth of the matter is they are worthy to become servants. They are worthy of any injustice which is brought against them in this moment because of their prior sins. They are aware of it and they accept it. We consider this in light of everything that, has gone, that they have gone through. This group of brothers who were so willing to sell their brother and had zero remorse over his pleading. This group of brothers who were willing to sell their brother regardless of what it would do to their father. The pain, the sorrow that it would cause Jacob never even crossed their minds in the past. So what is causing them now to experience their guilt? The answer, as Judah so eloquently puts it, is God. God is the one who has found out their guilt and is bringing all of these things against them. It is God alone who is able to transform our hearts to recognize our guilt before others and especially before himself. From the brothers, we see a transformation then. And that transformation is a reminder of how God is one who works within us to cause us to recognize our own guilt. 
how we are worthy of judgment because of our sins. We would never desire Christ apart from first recognizing that guilt. And as such, it is God who does this. But there's more than this too. Because not only is their guilt made manifest, but we also see how much this guilt changes them. Judah, again, is the front runner, and his example is set for not only his brothers to follow, but also the nation of Israel after him, as well as the church. He does not only experience his true guilt over his past actions, but this then transforms him into someone who seeks repentance. We notice it from the moment the cup was in Benjamin's sacks. All the brothers tore their clothes. Previously, it was only Jacob. Now it's all of them. Judah takes the lead and shows then how the change is made manifest as he pleads for mercy, not for himself, not because of the guilt he faces for not bringing Benjamin home. No, for the first time in the story of Joseph, we are seeing someone caring about their father, Jacob, as well as Benjamin. Gone are the moments prior when Judah would be willing to let his brother go into slavery. Gone is the man who would simply have left his brother who was more loved by his father than he was, and returned home. Gone is the Judah who would willingly and purposefully hurt his father and cause him grief. No more. No more. Instead, we see the transformation of a man who is now living in repentance, who has recognized his evil in the past and will not continue to pursue such evil in the future. Indeed, an individual who is willing to sell himself into slavery on behalf of his brother Benjamin and on behalf of his father who, despite not being the best father to them all, is still loved and honored by his son Judah. This example of repentant person is so prevalent in Judah, and I suspect all the brothers. But why is repentance important? Indeed, what is repentance and what does it look like specifically? The answer to that can be found in Matthew 3 and Matthew 7. Um, And this is something we've gone over years ago, but we're going to do it again. Um, In Matthew 3, we read, But when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to his baptism, he said to them, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruit in keeping with repentance. And do not presume to say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Even now, the axe is laid at the root of the tree. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Now this is the words of John the Baptist. And so John the Baptist tells these Pharisees to keep bearing fruit in keeping with repentance. He tells them that it is not enough to be born as children of Abraham since God could easily raise stones up to be children of Abraham. He ends up with a warning. Those who do not bear good fruit in keeping with repentance will be thrown into the fire in understanding of judgment. But is there more? Well, we do find more as Jesus describes good fruit later on in Matthew 7 when he says, Beware of the false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will recognize them by their fruits. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? So every healthy tree bears good fruit, but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus you will recognize them by their fruits. 
Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter into the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then I would declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. So we see, bearing good fruit is the evidence of a changed life. It is not enough for us to profess we know Christ. Mere profession means very little, and even the unrepentant can proclaim such things. Indeed, notice how the false prophets are identified because of their fruit. As such, a truly changed life in Christ will be one which bears good fruit. That's how a good tree is. It's no longer unhealthy. Jesus then answers the question of what such a life will look like by telling us that those who practice lawlessness are those who will in the end depart from him. As such, those who live a life as though no law were ever given. Those who live a life which has no evidence of the true guilt that they once had. John the Baptist said, bear good fruit in keeping with repentance. Christ expounds by saying, good fruit is not lawlessness. Thus, good fruit, repentance, is a turning away from sin and turning toward God as a lifestyle. To be obedient to the word of God, his law and his commandments, walking in his ways, by not allowing sin to have complete dominion on one's life. This is the evidence of the faithful, the one who has been truly changed. Now, do we see this in Judah? I believe we do. We see this repentant individual who is not like he once was, but is transformed. All of it is by the power of God himself. For it is only through the power of God that such a transformation can occur. And an individual who, being confronted with their guilt before God, can turn away from sin which they once pursued because of God. Not only do we notice this in Judah, and again I think in the other brothers, but we also notice something more. Judah's repentance does not rely on Jacob. It is Judah's responsibility to honor his father. Previously, he didn't care about this because of his father's favoritism. Does Jacob's favoritism cease? It doesn't appear so, as Benjamin is still the favored son. Thus, we are reminded that our responsibility to our faithful obedience in repentant lifestyle is not based on the others around us. Or consider it in this way. Let's say wives in the congregation. You're all called to, let's say, respect your husbands. Now you husbands, you are all called to love your wives as Christ loved the church. A repentant lifestyle is one which seeks to obey these commands. Now tell me, if your husband fails, do you cease respecting him? Conversely, if your wife fails to respect you, do you cease loving her? The answer is no. You still seek obedience to the best of your ability. Why? Because we seek to honor God above all else, and God is honored when we are obedient. The same can be true of the obedient and repentant politician who doesn't use evil methods to get votes, even if the rest of them do. (laughs) Or the same of the repentant business owner who doesn't treat their employees or customers poorly, even if they should fail miserably or others in the field treat them poorly. Even the second great commandment to love your neighbor as yourself falls in here because the command is not contingent on the love of our neighbors. Indeed, our obedience is what God calls us to, not contingent upon anyone else or anything other than God himself who brings us the strength to obey. 
Jacob should not show favoritism to his sons. He is failing his sons by doing this. He's failing his family by doing it. Does that mean that Judah should not honor him now? The answer is no. Judah is still called to honor his father, even in his father's failings. As such, the story today is an important one for us because this is our story. It's been said, we are the brothers in the grand scheme of things. We are the ones who have failed and have guilt. We are the ones who are in need of our guilt to be revealed to us, but we are also the ones who need to turn away from that which causes our guilt, which is sinful disobedience, and to seek to honor God with our lives in faithful obedience. Does this mean that we're saved because of our works? By no means. We are saved by the work of Christ and the love which is given to us by our Father in heaven through his Son. However, that should simply cause within us a greater and deeper desire to follow after him because he is worthy of our love and our lives because of what he has already done. Judah represents everything we are if we are in Christ. The working of God in him, it is the same as his working in us in the end. We should thank God for this, for it means that we are not alone, and we are not our own. Instead, it reminds us that we truly belong to God, who has brought us through the sacrifice of His Son, Jesus Christ. So rejoice over the knowledge which comes over our guilt, but rejoice also that it doesn't end with our guilt, but with our transformation by God's grace. We are not guilty forever, but we are changed We are transformed and we are redeemed by the great work of God through his son, Jesus Christ. To him be the praise, the glory, and the honor forever. And naturally that leads us to the gospel. And I think everyone, I mean, I kind of hit on it in the last two paragraphs. But um, I think we can see the gospel so prevalent in the lives of these brothers. Um, And how they're just an echo, right? I mean, you see it there. But then the real thing happens in Jesus, and you're like, wow, that's what we're talking about the whole time. Um, But it begins anyway with our origins and with the fact that, you know, Judah and his brothers are not just there by accident. They're there for a purpose. Even Joseph is there for a purpose. And where does everyone originate from? How do we even come to a purpose? Well, we come to that because of God. Because God created us in his image. And that God does exist before all else. And that he is above all else. And that he still created us with this imago dei in us. So that we have worth. And we all each have this within us. And it's a beautiful and wonderful thing to look around you. And to look in the mirror and say, guess what? You have the image of God. Those stars in the nighttime sky, they're beautiful. But they don't have what you have. I mean, we can go outside every day. And we could look up at those stars. And I think a lot of people do. And they think, wow, how wonderful. But really, it's really under your own houses, under the roof, that the image of God is. And that's spectacular to consider. The problem, of course, is the fall, though. And that's why the brothers have guilt to begin with. Because they've sinned. And sin leads to guilt. Sin always leads to guilt. And because of that, they are truly guilty before God because of their guilt. And each one of us is guilty because of our guilt and our sin and the fact that we all fall. The fact that we willingly break relationships just like the brothers did. Now the question is, 
How are we redeemed from this? How is it that we're able to say, okay, we're no longer guilty before God because of our sins? How is it done? And the answer with the new covenant is Jesus Christ. That through faith in him, through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, we are redeemed. And we can turn away from our sins. And we can find forgiveness. We can find repentance as a lifestyle. And even though we can never attain that apart from him, and we recognize that, we rejoice in the fact that, you know what? If we are guilty, God has provided a way out. And he has. And so we rejoice over the fact that God has done such a marvelous work in Jesus. And guess what? And it's in another weird way, another glorious way, this story reminds me of the redemption. And, and something else that Judah does. Consider it for a moment. Judah is willing to go down to Egypt, to a place of bondage, of slavery. And he's not willing to leave. Willing to even himself become a slave so that his brother can go home. It sounds a lot like Jesus there. For us. Because Jesus does the same thing. And guess what Jesus says too? The same thing as Judah. I'm not leaving without you. I'm not leaving without any of you. He even says, those whom my father has given me, I will not let go of. So we see another element of the gospel in Judah, don't we? Not only do we see ourselves, we also see how great God is and how great Jesus is and his sacrifice and the fact that he became a servant, a slave, dying on the cross so that way he could take you out of Egypt. And it's a wonderful and glorious thing. And it's our redemption, and it leads to glory. So even though we should be going through this Joseph story again, and I'm sure we've all heard it a million times, there's still always a little bit of Jesus there to find, isn't there? Let's rejoice in that. And let's rejoice over the fact that God continues to reveal himself to us. And let us pray. Father, we thank you so much for what you have accomplished through your son, Jesus Christ. We thank you so much that you have... um, shown us again and again through the lives of the patriarchs that it's not them, but it's your grace over and over again in their lives. It's not that they are so great. They have shown themselves to be petty, shallow. They have shown themselves to be sinful men. And yet, through them came Jesus Christ, your very own son. And so, Lord, through them we have hope because we see ourselves in them so often. We see ourselves as the unrepentant brothers and we see ourselves as the one who is willing to hurt. And yet, some way in your own miraculous providence, you redeem even us just as you redeem them. And so, Lord, we rejoice Because you are far more greater than our guilt. And the redemption that you give is far greater of justice. And that somehow even we who were so willing to go against it, so unrighteous in ourselves, through you and your power, are declared righteous through your Son. We thank you, Lord, for all that you have accomplished.
And it's in his name that we pray. Amen.